Revelation 19. Listen to the word of God. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke of her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened and... Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast 
And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of God. Heaven was called to rejoice over the defeat of Babylon in verse 20 of chapter 18. Just last Sunday we saw that text. And we hear that rejoicing right here this morning as chapter 19 opens. And that rejoicing moves us right into the celebration of the eternal union with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Our eternal union with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Surely then, to state it clearly from the beginning, our desired outcome this morning will simply be to sharpen our longing for that day. For this day that is described here in Revelation 19. Our desired outcome this morning is simply to sharpen our longing for this day. To stoke the flame of our desire for the full and final initiation of our eternal and uncompromised union with Christ for all eternity. That's what we want to have in mind as we leave here today. A longing for that day. I believe that's what this text is intended to do within us, especially as it appears at this place in this sequence of visions of the Apostle John. So that's our aim, and that's where we're headed. Let's see how that aim unfolds and expresses the heart of this text. We'll see it in two parts, but I'll divide each of those two parts into two parts, and I'll get to that as we move through them. But listed in your bulletin this morning are the two points of this outline, essentially, how Revelation 19 breaks nicely into two parts. We first have the rejoicing in heaven, verses 1 through 10. Then we have the return of Christ, verses 11 to 21. Let's move into this text and see what it teaches. The rejoicing in heaven. I said we'll divide this into two parts. We will. The first part, the celebrating multitude in verses 1 through 6. And then the wedding of the Lamb in verses 7 to 10. So the celebrating multitude, 1 to 6, the wedding of the Lamb, 7 to 10. This chapter, chapter 19, this is a deep insight, listen closely, follows hard on the heels of chapter 17 and 18. That's one of those exegetical insights that you just can't get everywhere, right? This chapter follows hard on the heels of 17 and 18 and the final destruction of Babylon 
the great prostitute. The archetype of, of a society in rebellion against God. That's who Babylon is. As we talked last week, it's a historical city and power in the ancient Near East. And it is also a metaphorical representation of all societies that stand against the sovereign rule of the true and living God. And now... In 17 and 18, we learn that Babylon is gone forever, and the people of God are rejoicing. You hear in their rejoicing the tension that has been experienced between them and Babylon throughout history. Babylon has been the basis of their trial and tribulation and persecution and hardship and opposition, and now it's gone. It has been judged. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as he is identified in chapter 17, has, been, has taken them on and has put them away. And the celebration here signals that as the clearest indicator of the triumph of the Lamb and his worthiness of worship. To put it a bit differently, this passage on the triumph of God in the judgment and destruction of the prostitute is expressed as worship and praise. That's what comes to God because of his triumph over the systems of this world. The multitude here is not glorying in the suffering that this victory inflicts. That's incidental to the significance of what's actually happening in this portion of this letter of Revelation. The multitude is not glorying in the suffering that this victory inflicts, but in the just retribution that it reflects. It's just judgment that's being poured out to the praise of the holiness of the God who is implementing it. God's judgment is affirmed as entirely true and just here in verse 2. Even as it has been long awaited, He's finally avenging the blood of his saints, verse 2 says. Recalling in our minds chapter 6 when the saints under the altar were calling out and asking, how long? And they were given a white robe, remember, and told to wait just a little longer until the full number, those who were to die as they were to die, had been accomplished. God in sovereign control of all that's happening. And now the long-awaited event is arriving, the thing that the saints are calling out for in heaven, under the altar, and on earth. How long, how long do we endure what we see, the evil of this world, knowing the power of God to set it right? How long do we wait? That question is on the hearts of the saints on earth, even as it is in the hearts of the saints in heaven. Verse 6 here then completes this eruption of worship, this fourfold hallelujah. Do you see that? Verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, verse 6. Another of those apocalyptic numbers of completeness. Four, four hallelujahs in this text. This is unbridled worship going on in heaven because of what has taken place. The same great multitude that John heard in verse 1 is now shouting, in the words of many commentators, even louder. That's what we see 
in verse 6. That's what verse 6 gives us beyond what verse 1 has already given us. He's coming back to this multitude and their worship and praise is escalating to a crescendo. It's building to a climax. Their joy in what God is doing, finally vindicating his name and setting to rights all evils is just rapturous joy to his people. So the great multitude of verse 1 is now shouting even louder, using metaphors we've seen before, like the roar of many waters, describing the voice of Jesus in that vision from chapter 1. And the sound of mighty thunder, we've heard that throughout the letter. And they were, verse 6, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Absolutely exhilarating. And this is an interesting verb tense here. Sorry for the detail on the heels of such joy. It's called an inceptive aorist it's, or an ingressive aorist, one of the two. So it's a past tense verb here, but it emphasizes the initiation of an action. That means this verse would best be translated, perhaps as the New English Bible translated it, the Lord our God has entered on his reign. Or as some other commentators suggest, the Lord God has begun to reign. It's much like what we read of the return of Jesus when the seventh trumpet was sounded back in chapter 11. Remember reading there, verse 15? There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And in verse 17, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. There's a very real sense in which the God of all creation, the God of the universe, who has ruled and reigned forever and is now ruling and reigning uniquely in Christ since His crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, is beginning His reign again here now on this day. It's coronation day. In addition to being the fulfillment of the joy of the people of God, it's God Himself ascending the throne once again to the praise and worship of His people. In the words of Greg Beale, God's reign is a direct consequence of His judgment of Babylon. He has shown Himself to be the all-powerful divine King by His great act of deposing the system of this world that arrogated itself to that office in His place. He has displaced them. King of the mountain, think of it that way. And God has said, no, you cannot stand there. That place is rightfully mine. And in perfect justice and mercy and judgment and wrath, he deposes the systems of this world, the powers of this world, and takes his rightful place to the praise and rejoicing of all creation, heaven and earth. That's what we see in that early half of the first section of Revelation 19. That moves us on to the next scene of celebration, which is the wedding of the Lamb in verses 7 to 10. It's time. It's time for this day to arrive. 
And we begin right away to see connections between the bride, here in verse 7, and we also might call the New Jerusalem from chapter 21, and the prostitute, Babylon, from chapter 17 and 18. There's an intentional contrast and correlation being drawn here. The righteous deeds of the saints, verse 8, described as fine linen clothing, bright and pure, are in stark but intentional contrast to the attire that was mentioned of the prostitute back in chapter 17, purple and scarlet with gold and jewels and pearls, all the ostentation in the world, all the showy outer displays in the world. But now, now the bride has arrived. Purity and holiness and glory and splendor, just as Scripture has said, will be characteristic of her when she is finally free of the sin that has entangled her. It also takes us all the way back to the reward of the church back in chapter 3, the raiment of the martyrs in chapter 6 and 7, those white robes, and we see it again here in the purity of the raiment of the bride. And this leads into one of the blessings of Revelation. I haven't made a whole lot out of the seven blessings since way back in chapter 1 when we pointed them out in the opening message. But we have now arrived at the middle of the seven blessings in this letter. We've already heard chapter 1, verse 3, as the book opens, blessed is the one who reads aloud the word of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. That was introductory. Then we didn't hear another one until chapter 14, verse 13, where we read, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. We heard that statement then, and Believe we understand what it means, but here's where it comes into full focus in chapter 19. We see what the deeds of the righteous really have been doing. They've been preparing the bride for her wedding day, but that's one of the blessings. 14, 13, we then saw in chapter 16, verse 15, blessed is the one who stays awake, anticipating the coming of the Lord. Still to come are chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first re resurrection. God willing, we will look at that text next Sunday. And then again, chapter 22, verse 7, closing off the inclusio that started in 1-3, repeating the blessing of that text. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then finally, verse 14 of chapter 22, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. But today, we hear the middle one, number four of seven, chapter 19, verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I think we can say without the slightest concern of overstatement, the greatest invitation any of us will ever receive. This is our summons to the table, my friends. Do you hear it? This is the event we've anticipated 
Ever since redemption was first promised in the Garden of Eden. Throughout Scripture, the relationship between God and His people has been cast in the metaphor of human marriage at every single stage from the beginning of the book to the end. And this is the climax. His people have longed for this day like a bride longs for her wedding day. And that's the anticipation we want to stoke in your heart today. Christ's bride has sewn her gown with her own hands using the precious thread of her righteous deeds and all to the praise of Him who enabled them. You wonder if it's worth fighting hard against sin? What Revelation 19 gives us, tying off that metaphor to real life, is that the labor we put into saying no to sin and yes to righteousness every time, everywhere, is preparing us for this day of our union with Christ. We would not want to give up on an opportunity to add to the beauty of our adornment on that day any more than a bride would say, ah, it's okay if the dress has a smudge on it. It's okay if that seam isn't quite finished. It's okay if, if, if the decorations we were embroidering, and we don't quite have time, we'll finish those on Monday morning. Wouldn't happen, would it? There's the intensity of the image. What the bride is wearing on the wedding day is the fruition of her pursuit of the groom toward faithful, pure worthiness of his love. Not earning it as though she has to do that herself. Living in light of what she has been granted by his gracious and merciful love. Christ's bride has sewn her gown with the precious thread of her righteous deeds and to the praise of him who enabled them. Now the day has finally come. The day when Jesus will once again drink of the fruit of the vine with her to pick up on the promise that he gave to his disciples, Matthew 26, on the night that he was betrayed. John is moved to worship by all that he sees here, and we can understand that, can't we? And the angel he sees, verse 9, seems to be worthy of that worship. John, at this late stage, and it's not the last time he's going to do it, is, is so overwhelmed by the glory of the angelic being who's delivering the message that he thinks he's the one who's worthy of the worship for it. Verse 10, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. We get all of that. Then we hear this interesting statement. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And something in our ear says, wow, that sounds significant. Now, where does it go from here? And we leave that behind. I'm going to take just a moment to suggest what this is saying. 
This statement, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, it means one of two things, almost certainly. It means either that all true prophecy has its origin in the words and the acts of Jesus, or all true prophecy manifests itself in testimony about Jesus. It means one of those two. It either means the heart of prophecy is the witness born to men and women by Jesus about God's redemptive purpose in him, or the true testimony that men and women bear regarding God's redemptive purpose in Jesus is the very heart of prophecy. So it's either Jesus' words to us about himself or it's our words to one another about him that stand at the very heart of what the prophetic message is in Scripture. That means the genitive here is either subjective or objective, and it's hard to tell which. But the really good thing is, whichever one we take, it's a true statement. Both halves are true. So whatever this verse means, whatever this phrase means, and it's one of those two things, take your pick because both of them are true. My feeling is what I just did, emphasize both of them, because you can appreciate what's being said. Jesus gives us the message of true prophecy, and we proclaim it, we exercise it, we engage in it as we pass it along. So worship God and exalt Jesus, that's what the angel is saying to John here. And that takes us right into Part two of this chapter. Jesus needs to be central. Jesus needs to be the focus. The testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And who is the next person we meet in the text? Finally, but Jesus himself. So the first half of this second half of Revelation 19 is the rider on the white horse, verses 11 to 16, and then the battle on the great day of God Almighty, verses 17 to 21. So the rider on the white horse, verses 11 to 16, then the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Finally, this is unmistakably Jesus we see in verses 11 through 16. Just, just look at the descriptions. We just want to walk them through them together. His name is faithful and true, verse 11. Uh, we heard him by that description back in chapter 3, verse 14, the, the opening statement to the church in Laodicea, uh, the words of the faithful and true witness. He judges in righteousness. That means he judges justly, verse 11. Recalling the words from Genesis 18, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He also makes war, we read here, in righteousness. He makes war in righteousness. By the way, removing all doubt of whether an argument can actually be made in favor of just war. It's not an easy argument to make, but we have good evidence here that it is possible Jesus makes war in righteousness. 
We read that his eyes are like fire, verse 12, uh, drawing from the vision of him back in chapter 1, verse 14. His name is the Word of God. We recognize that. John opened his gospel and he opened his first letter with that same acknowledgement that he is writing here as this individual shows up. His name is the Word of God. His name is also King of Kings and Lord of Lords, verse 16. Words that we already read back in chapter 17, as we mentioned before, verse 14 of that chapter. And he also has a name that no one knows but himself, verse 12. So his name is the Word of God, his name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he has a name that no one knows but himself. That means that even here, he can't be fully known. Notice issues like that in the text. He's given two names, and then he's told that he has a name that no one can know. How does that work? I think that's what John is showing in apocalyptic imagery. There are certain things that we do know about him. There are some things that we don't, and it will always be so. There's a sharp sword coming out of his mouth, just as there was back in chapter 1, verse 16, in that vision. He will defeat the nations and rule them with a rod of iron, verse 15, recalling the language of Psalm 2 and other texts. He himself will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, verse 15. You remember the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty back in chapter 14, verses 19 and 20? That gruesome image here, we hear that Jesus himself will tread out the grapes of wrath. He will execute judgment on the wicked. And verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The natural place our mind goes is back to the cross that he was clothed in a robe dipped in blood, but I don't think that's what John is referring to here. I think he's actually drawing in an image from Isaiah 63, spotlighting Jesus' role as judge of all the earth and as the executor of that judgment. Listen to Isaiah 63 and all of the, just verses 1 through 3 and all of the different themes from right here in this section of Revelation that are reflected there. Almost surely, this is what John is drawing on as he describes Jesus as having a, wearing a, a robe that is dipped in blood. Isaiah 63 begins with a question, and then God answers. And then it has a second question, and God answers again. Listen, who is this who comes from Eden in crimsoned garment? Not in crimson garments, but in crimsoned garments, garments that have been made crimson by something happening to them. Who is this who comes from Eden in crimsoned garments from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? And then that one answers, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Follow-up question, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? Answer, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, and I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood 
splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. This is the judge and his arrival in the glorious sections of Isaiah's prophecy. Surely this is what John had in mind as he talks about a robe dipped in blood. Verse 14, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, most likely angels were following him also on white horses. It's as though John is making sure we don't miss the fact that Jesus has finally arrived. He's saying it in so many different ways that we can't miss it. Yet he just mistook an angel for one deserving of worship. And now another angel is present immediately here, described as standing in the sun. Verse 17, how great and glorious is that? Do you think we in our present state would be able to distinguish between an angel who can stand in the sun and whatever we understand to be God himself? Well, John was struggling in just that same way here. But what John sees in between these two angels removes all doubt of who is truly worthy of worship, and that's what he's presenting to us, and I think that's why there's so many descriptors of Jesus. All right, there's the one, there's the guy that receives our worship. There's the being before whom we bow. And then we move toward the conclusion, toward the battle of the great day of God the Almighty, and by the way, that language comes directly from chapter 16, verse 14. That's where we're first introduced to Armageddon and the final battle is back in chapter 16. Now we're coming around to the place where it actually takes place, where it happens. We've said that this whole section between the seventh trumpet in 11, 15 to 19, and now the return of Christ in 19, verses 6 to 10, that those are really the same event and yet they've been pulled apart much the same way as a, as a movie director would do in a scene to put in between there all of the things that are anchored into this grand and glorious historic moment such that they, 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 they fire off like the finale at a fireworks display. All of them taking place. Some of them reflection on the entire history of the church. Some of them things that are occurring right there and then in that moment. All of them tied in together, though, toward illuminating the innumerable facets of the glory of the return of Christ. And we see it again here, borrowing the language from chapter 16 to describe what's happening now here in chapter 19. But as this battle arrives not much detail is given to it here. We read more about the cleanup than we read about the battle itself. No movie director would do that. Watch Lord of the Rings. Long stretches of amazing detailed battle scenes making you wonder, who's, who's going to win this? Well, there's no doubt of that in this particular text because the battle, evidently, from John's observation, is not even worthy of comment. He talks only about the cleanup afterwards. It was done as it began. To quote two different commentators here, first of all, George Beasley Murray, 
the angel summons to the birds of prey to gather together for the great supper of God is drawn from Ezekiel's vision of the overthrow of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 39. So that's where the image comes for the call of the birds to, to clean up. Though the assault of Gog and Magog is set by John at the close of the millennial kingdom, that's in the next chapter, he'll actually refer to Gog and Magog there in harmony with Ezekiel's vision, Beasley Murray says. But he's drawing on some of that imagery right here as he talks about this cleanup of the battle. This great supper of God, he continues, for birds of prey is a gruesome counterpart to the feast that begins the millennial reign, namely the marriage supper of the Lamb that opened this chapter. We have two great feasts in Revelation 19. I considered titling this message, Two Great Feasts, but you know what? Ugh, I don't want to draw that much attention to the second one. <laughs> let's read it, let's understand what's going on there, and let's leave it and rejoice in the marriage supper of the Lamb. To quote now from another, the beast and his armies gather to fight against Christ and his army. The world rulers, meaning the beast and the false prophet, will be captured their miraculous demonic power that we read about back in chapter 13 will no longer be sufficient to save them. Both of them will be thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur as part of this battle that has almost no detail to it. The wicked who have died throughout the history of the world are at this point in Hades, this commentator points out. This fiery lake is a different place. Jesus said in his Olivet Discourse that it was prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. And surely they are the first to experience it. But as we read into chapter 20, the wicked will also occupy that place with them eternally. It's not quite yet in John's telling. That happens after the millennial kingdom as they receive their final judgment. There's the text. What is our closing charge today? We said it at the beginning. Simply, clearly stated, fix your eyes on our wedding to Christ. Fix your eyes on our wedding to Christ and live for that day. That's the blessed hope of the believer. That's the focal point. We live with our attention fixed on the return of our Savior. Otherworldly though this chapter is as it begins, and gruesome as it is as it finishes, these paragraphs, the opening and closing, are wrapped around the middle portion of this chapter, wrapped around one of the most blessed texts in all the Bible, not to mention the most blessed text in this letter of Revelation. In this passage, the day of our salvation is realized. In this chapter, Jesus returns. In this passage, we're, we're gathered into His presence 
and our labors toward worship and obedience and endurance against the incessant pushback of this world and our flesh and the devil. All of that is finished. As this chapter progresses. The day anticipated in the celebration of communion has finally arrived in this text. The day when Jesus will once again drink the fruit of the vine with his followers. And to quote the Apostle Paul, so we will always be with the Lord. When this event happens, so we will always be with the Lord. It'll be finished. It'll be done. Do you long for that day? Amen. It's amazing to me that God in His providence has placed this passage before us on the Sunday that for the past 1,300 years has been designated for the celebration of All Saints Day. That's the hymn that we sang together just a few minutes ago. There's no passage more central to the right celebration of the unity of the church militant and the church triumphant. Do you understand that language from Augustine? The church militant, that's the church that's still alive and functioning in this world today, and the church triumphant, those who are already in the presence of the Lamb. There's no passage more central to the right celebration of the unity of the church militant and the church triumphant than Revelation 19, verses 6 to 10. All Saints Day was originally established in the 7th century to honor the brothers and sisters in Christ who were martyred under the Roman Empire in the first 300 years of the church. But since then, it has become so mired in poor theology and snared in pagan syncretism that it's barely worthy of mention any longer. Even so, we have this celebration right here in Revelation 19. This celebration that consists of the gathering of all saints from all times who have been reconciled to God by faith in the finished work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, gathered right here. This celebration is the focal point for the saints on earth and the saints in heaven, just as we've said, as the indicator of what we read back in chapter 16, verse 15, that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. That's what's being celebrated. This is our promised inheritance, my friends. And it's it's worthy of our celebration this day. It's worthy of our focal point this day of Revelation 19 to strengthen our longing for its arrival to weed out the opposition in our minds and hearts that continually calls us away from this focus. So whatever we want to call that celebration, it is worthy of celebration and it is what we celebrate today in Revelation 19. To the praise of the glory of God and of the Lamb who accomplished it at the cost of His own life. This scene that's depicted in our light panels this morning 
beginning a theme that will continue for the next three weeks, which just happened to be the final three weeks of the church calendar. And Advent begins a new year, the birth of Christ. It's how the church thinks of the beginning of a year of worship and service. So over the next three weeks, finishing with Christ the King Sunday on the 20th, anticipating the full and final establishment of Jesus' righteous and eternal reign, that's what the images are depicting. This morning, the panels are representing the worship in heaven in response to the judgment of Babylon, followed by the celebratory gathering at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I pointed out because our artist was unable to fit 144,000 <laughs> silhouettes in the light panels. Um, so to capture the spirit of the scene, they reduced the illustration to three twelves, two, two gloriously apocalyptic numbers, dressed in white. Bottom line, think about this. We're engaged to be married to the one who is named King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We've been given the engagement ring of His Holy Spirit, the earnest, the gift of promise, the token of assurance that our groom will not leave us at the altar. but will be our faithful provider and protector and loving partner for all eternity. And just as an expectant bride lives in anticipation of her wedding day, backtiming every activity in her life from that day, in order to be ready when it arrives. Even so, we, the church, are called to live in anticipation of our wedding day. That's the short definition of what it means to stay awake. As we heard again back in chapter 16, and as we heard in each of the gospel renditions of Jesus' teaching on the end times, stay awake. The calling of the church. This is what it looks like. It means living in anticipation of this day. Recognizing all will be set right on this day. Recognizing I'll be free of all opposition to my walk of obedience and worship on this day. Surely this day could not possibly fail to exceed the joy that's generated in the heart of the bride in anticipation of a merely human, sin-stained marriage celebration, right? Surely human marriage is no rival for this. In fact, this will exceed that in infinite measure and eternal duration. So much so that human marriage is just the metaphor and this is the reality. What did Jesus say when asked, who will her husband be in heaven? 
He said, in heaven, there'll be no more marriage or being given in marriage. We'll be like the angels. Why did he say that? Because marriage isn't a glorious gift from God? No, because the metaphor is done and the reality is present. And this is it. Friends, this is our inheritance. This is our promised, certain future. It's been sealed by the resurrection and ascension of Jesus on the heels of His crucifixion to remove all obstacles between us and God. And it will surely be achieved upon His return in power and great glory, the way Luke described it. In Luke 21. So what do we do? I'm going to finish with John's words from another of his letters. We've heard the resonance between Revelation 19 and the Gospel of John and 1 John, the letter. I'm going to finish with something from 1 John that tells us just what we should do and how we should live in light of that day. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. Abide in Him. Walk with Him. So that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. That's how we want to live. And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. You know what our response is to that? It's the very bottom line of this letter when it finishes in chapter 22, verse 20. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Agreed? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. And as we pray, let's have the musicians and the communion servers join me at the front. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture. Glorious as it is in parts, gruesome as it is in parts. I just pray, Lord God, that freed from the distracting fascinations of all the imagery that John uses to try to convey what you are showing him, we might see the reality of what we have long hoped for, of the central event that we anticipate this side of heaven. Father, help us to live in light of what we read in Revelation 19, to live in anticipation of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in power and great glory, in victory over sin and Satan and this world order, such that we, the undeserving recipients of the great salvation that he has provided, might enter into the worship and praise and relationship and intimacy with him, with you, for which we have been created. And now, Lord God, as we remember that indescribably gracious and glorious gift, the sacrifice that was made to reconcile us to you. Help us to do so with hearts 
filled with worship and praise as members of Christ's body, of his bride. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.